We'll continue standing for the reading of God's word from Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. And he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables, and in his teaching he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depths of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and indeed may hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on the rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. This is a great parable, and a fitting parable for summertime. You notice where it takes place? It takes place at the place most of us would rather be right now, at the beach, on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. A great crowd has gathered to hear and to see Jesus. And so that this parable and the others he's about to tell would be heard, and so that he as the speaker could be seen, Jesus gets into a boat and he sits down and then begins to teach. Jesus' aim in doing this was not to impress a great crowd. It was not even to see or pressure many into coming to faith. Rather, Jesus arranged this scene, this teaching moment before a great crowd. He arranged this scene 
to help people understand their relationship to God by helping them understand their relationship to God's word. As I mentioned earlier, it's the seed that is the primary character and focus of this parable. The sower is never identified. The four soils that are mentioned are really only mentioned and described in relationship to what happens to the seed in them. Jesus identifies the seed as the word in verse 14. And the identity of the word and the significance of this parable is made crystal clear in the parallel passage in Luke. Luke chapter 8, verse 11, Jesus says, the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. That's the parable. The seed is the word of God. And so this morning we're going to consider what happens to the seed in the plot of this parable. Where does it come from? Where does it go? What happens to it? And as we do that, we, like the crowd on that beach, are called to examine our relationship to God based on our relationship to the Word of God. We're going to begin looking at the text in verse 10, skipping past Jesus' telling of the parable and going to his explanation to the disciples of why he tells the parable and what it means. In verses 10 through 14, we see Jesus explain that the seed exposes the nature of the kingdom of God. The seed exposes the nature of the kingdom of God. He mentions the kingdom in verse 11. He says to his disciples privately, he says, to you has been given the secret to the kingdom of God. And that secret is contained within the seed we see in these verses. Before we unpack that exactly. I want us to make sure we're on the same page about what is the kingdom of God that's used all over the place in the Gospels. It's defined different ways, but when the Bible refers to the kingdom of God, it's speaking of God's people living in God's place under God's rule. God's people living in God's place under God's rule. Being a part of the kingdom of God even though we may not refer to it this way, being a part of the kingdom of God is something we all long for. We're all made in God's image and therefore we long to be his. We all long to be with him. We all long to walk in harmony with him and reflect him in our lives. We all long for it. You heard it echoed in Hayden's song that he sang that longing to be in paradise, that longing to be with our maker and to be at peace with him. And the seed exposes the, the nature of entering the kingdom of God, the nature of being a part of the kingdom of God in this way. Jesus makes it clear that one enters the kingdom of God by truly and deeply receiving and believing God's word. Most in the crowd on the beach that day would have assumed that they were automatically, by virtue of their birth, by virtue of the place in which they lived, by virtue of their desire to obey the Old Testament laws, most of those people on that beach would have assumed that they were already a part of the kingdom of God. 
they probably would have been thinking to themselves, the kingdom belongs to us. The question is, should this man, Jesus, be named as our king? And Jesus, through this parable, flips that whole series of assumptions on its head. He flips the whole thing on its head. And in a roundabout way, he tells his disciples, the kingdom belongs to me. The question is, have you truly received it? He promises that the secret of the kingdom of God will be given to many, but he also warns that not all who encounter the kingdom belong to it. Not all who wander are lost, but not all who think they are found truly are. And so there's a blessing and a warning wrapped up in this quotation that he brings from Isaiah chapter 6, using God's word to affirm the place of God's word in the kingdom. From Isaiah 6, he says, everything is in parables so that they may indeed see but not perceive, may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. In a nutshell, Jesus is saying that belonging to the kingdom requires more than seeing and hearing, more than seeing or hearing him. To be a part of that great crowd at the beach was a good thing, but it wasn't enough. To belong to the kingdom requires perceiving and understanding and responding in repentance and faith to the word of God that Jesus was preaching. Specifically, not just believing and understanding God's word in an objective way, as if you know the 66 books of the Bible and know the history of the people of Israel or have memorized some verses, but specifically this this understanding and perceiving and embracing and engaging in God's word is a matter of embracing the story, the message, the overarching message of God's word that we as people have been made in God's image and yet fallen into ruin and sin and deserve God's judgment. And yet in love, in mercy, in grace, God has given us his own son, Jesus, to take the place of our punishment on the cross, to rise from death victorious over sin and death, that message of the gospel, that good news, that forgiveness and new life has come in Jesus, that that overarching message of God's word that extends from Genesis to Revelation is a message that Jesus says we must embrace deeply to be a part of the kingdom of God. By believing this good news recorded and given to us in God's word, our longing for God, our longing for the kingdom of God can be realized. And that's why Jesus, to lay out the context of his explanation of the parable, directs his disciples to focus on the word of God. This is a parable not merely about liking God's word. This is a parable about salvation itself. Because faith comes by hearing the word of Christ through God's word. And so we see Jesus emphasize and expose the nature of the kingdom, the nature of relationship to him by pointing us to his word. 
The second main thing we see now as Jesus explains the parable is that in the process of seeking to engage God's word and understand God's word and believe this message that's contained in God's word, there are threats. There are three threats. There are many threats that face us as receivers of the word. We see it in verses 15 through 20 as Jesus explains what happens to the seed as it goes out from the sower. On the path, first of all, on the path, the seed experiences the threat of Satan. Look down with me at verse 15. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes a word, takes away the word that is sown in them. Satan knows what's going on. Satan knows that saving faith only comes by hearing the word. So Satan hits us where it hurts in our hearing of the word of God. In fact, the first time Satan ever appears in the Bible, do you remember where it is? Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, appearing to Adam and Eve. And what are the first words out of that serpent's lips? Did God really say, you shall not eat of any fruit of the tree in the garden? Did God really say? It's this questioning, this seeking to divide us as God's people from God's word that has come to us. We need to be watchful for Satan's attack. Sometimes it might look like simple distractions that there are better things to do or more urgent things to do than to pay attention to God's word in worship or in our homes as families or in the quiet of personal reading of scripture. That there are better things to do with a Tuesday morning or a Wednesday night than to gather with brothers and sisters at church and study the word. Sometimes his attacks appear as mere distractions. Sometimes His attacks appear as a direct assault on the word where we question its truthfulness, where we are confused by its meaning. Satan's in the business of driving this wedge between us and the word. How are we to defend ourselves? Paul gives us at least one hint in his passage on spiritual warfare in Ephesians 6 that we are to defend ourselves actually with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. That our defense is Scripture itself, which only emphasizes the necessity and the place of God's Word in our lives. The second threat that we see the seed experience is that among the rocks, the seed experiences the threat of suffering. You see this in verses 16 and 17, look down with me. It says, and these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but they endure for a while, and then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. The seed of God's word threatened by suffering, Our world is broken. 
Our world is broken because of sin. Our bodies are broken. Our minds are broken. Things happen to us that are seemingly chaotic and are really terrible and disastrous. And no amount of wealth or wisdom can cause us to escape suffering. Not even being a part of a church or professing believer or believing strongly in God's promises can cause us to escape suffering. And for some, it's suffering that causes doubt in God's word. The classic question comes, if God is good and powerful, then why this suffering? God's word must lie, we think. Either God is not good, or he is not powerful. I know the sting of suffering well, both personally and as a pastor who walks with you and grieves with you, suffering in your life. I know the questions are real. The questions are haunting. But we are called to interpret our suffering by God's word, not vice versa. The living God has spoken to us. The living God has recorded for us all kinds of explanations and stories of suffering. One of the greatest apologetics of the Christian faith is its robust ability to explain human suffering. And so in those seasons of suffering, we must be people who cling to his word, not run from it. Finally, the third soil, the third threat that the seed experiences is the threat of success. Verses 18 and 19. They say, others are the ones sown among thorns. They are the ones who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. For some, it is the negative things of life, the sufferings of life that drive a wedge between us and God's word. For some, it is the good things, the pleasurable things, the desirable things of life that distract us and divide us from the word of God. 500 years ago, the reformer John Calvin said that it was this particular soil that was the most deceitful and difficult for the people of God. He notes that while the soil on the path and the soil on the rocks heard the word, it was the soil among the thorns that had really seemed to believe it. More than all the others. But eventually that soil choked on the things of the world. And it died. What a warning this is to us who live in a place and in a time surrounded by easy access to riches and the desires for the things of the world. Now here's the, the remedy that God's word gives. The remedy, again, comes from the word itself. Psalm 119, verse 72. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. 
that work of the Spirit where we would delight in God's word more than anything else we might taste and see in this world. Better to us than all riches. But you know what? Here's the hard truth. None of us can work that truth into our souls in and of ourselves. None of us can believe that. None of us can defend the attacks of Satan. None of us can avoid the effects of suffering. None of us, none of us can turn away our eyes from the things of this world in our own strength. We can take up the sword of the Spirit. We can study what God's Word says about suffering. We can try to love God a lot more than our stuff. But these threats are far bigger and far deeper than our own strength. We need God to make us good soil. We need God to make us good soil. Look down at the first part of verse 20. It says, but those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit. What does it say that the good soil did to become good soil? Nothing. That soil didn't do anything. It was simply prepared by God to receive the seed fruitfully. Farmers would call it fertilization. The Bible calls it regeneration. Being given a new heart and a new mind so that it can understand and believe and obey God's words. And here is the awesome news. God makes good soil out of all kinds of people. People within the church, with access to God's word and familiarity with the kingdom of God, people far from it. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Male and female, rich and poor. God makes good soil out of all kinds of people. And we don't know exactly who those people might be. And so we are called to sow the word everywhere. Now, how do you know if you're good soil? How do you know if you're if you're doing what Jesus is calling us to do and testing the heart to examine, well, which soil am I? For in this room, just like on that beach, all kinds of soils are present. All four, perhaps. So how do you know? Well, you find yourself caring about God's word if you're good soil. You sense a burning conviction in your heart that the truths that you hear read and written in God's word, makes sense. That they're somehow real and important and right. You love and trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. And if those things are true of you, if you are that good soil, then there is fruit as well. There's tangible, observable, practical fruit that's born out of believing the gospel. And this is the effect, the incredible effect of God's word planted in good soil. It bears exponential fruit. 
the seed of God's word bears exponential fruit in people who are good soil. You see this in the second half of verse 20. That the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. This is the great climax, the great emphasis of this parable. Not just the warnings of testing whether you are good soil, but the great promise that in good soil, God bears great fruit. This parable is kicking off three parables that celebrate this. Not just this parable, but you look down later in the chapter, the parable of the seed growing, the parable of the mustard seed. Two more parables that emphasize this very point, that from something small, the seed of God's word, great fruit in the kingdom is born. Great fruit comes. So if you remember one thing, remember this, the word bears great fruit and no fruit comes apart from the word. It's impossible. Isaiah 55 reminds us of the great promise. For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it sprout and bring forth, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out of my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. That's the promise. God is at work through his word. God does all his work through his word. And therefore we as believers, as disciples, as those to whom this secret has been given, we are called to be deliberate in reading and teaching and preaching and praying and singing the word of God so that it would go deep in us, so that we would bear great fruit. Two quick church family illustrations as we close. In a few minutes, we're going to vote Chad off the island. (laughs) Chad has been faithful here. And so we don't take that vote lightly. We don't enjoy it. Chad's been faithful. And his influence will be felt here for years to come, not because of his great personality or his boyish good looks, but because Chad sowed the word of God here. He sowed the word of God here. He did what our pulpit calls him to do. Have you noticed that the ironwork on our pulpit is a picture of wheat shooting forth? That this pulpit is meant to be a seed bearing fruit. And so while he may leave geographically and in terms of employment, the fruit of his good work, his right handling of the word of God and causing us to know it and love it and obey it, that fruit will be born for years to come. But not all of us are preachers and teachers, right? 
No matter our gifts and calling, though, we too are called to be sowers of the word. In whatever particular skill or trade or gift we've been given, we're called to be sowers of the word. My mother, Linda Frey, directs the children's choirs here. And for 30 years, I have heard her say that her purpose in directing children's choirs is not to teach kids music. She loves music, but for her, it's a means to an end. The end being, and I quote, planting the word of God deeply in the hearts and minds of children. Music has that unique capacity to make texts memorable and to embed texts in our hearts and minds. And even in her own life, this is proving true. Three weeks ago, she was diagnosed with brain cancer. And she had surgery about 12 days ago or so. And the day or two later, I was walking with her in the hallway at the hospital, helping her to begin moving and finding balance and regaining strength. As we walked down the hall, um, we observed some flowers and some different things. And I said, let's, let's kind of sing a little bit. Remember singing? This tumor is in a region of her brain that affects memory and speech and cognition. And so certain things that she would ordinarily remember are not there. So I started humming Amazing Grace. And by the second line, she joined in humming. And I said, do you remember the words? She said, I don't, I don't think so. I said, I bet you do. And so we sang, I sang, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound, and waited, and she filled it in, that saved a wretch like me. She didn't remember my name that night, but she remembered the truths and the promises of God's word. In good soil, God's word goes deeper than our suffering. It goes deeper than our forgetfulness. It goes deeper than all things. And so just as God is doing his work in us through his word, may we do his work in this place by his word, teaching it, singing it, remembering it, calling it to mind ourselves and for one another until the word of God, Jesus Christ, descends again and calls us home to his kingdom. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its promises. We thank you, Jesus, for the supernatural work that you are doing in our hearts and our lives even now, taking this big, long, complex book and making its truths real to us. Father, I pray that there would be many in this room, that even all in this room would prove by your Holy Spirit to be good soil. As we hear and read your word, read what it says about you, the holy God, our creator, read what it says about us as sinners in your sight. Read about the good, great news of Jesus Christ rescuing us from sin and death by his cross. 
Father, may we respond by perceiving and understanding, turning and repenting, and walking in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.